Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. This week, are you listening to this on a beach? Probably not, as the government's sudden 14-day quarantine on people returning from Spain casts doubt on whatever is left of your summer plans. We wonder, is tourist travel over? What will our economies do without it? Plus, attention listeners over 40, there must be some of you. Are you ready to be taxed to cover your social care in later life? What will conservative plans for the care sector mean in practice? And are we about to experience dementia tax too? Deja vu all over again. Finally, have we had enough of living? for the city. If the reasons for metropolitan living, culture, restaurants, nightlife are disappearing under the COVID onslaught, leaving nothing behind but high rents and expensive travel, will the suburbs and the countryside become ever more attractive? All this and more in today's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Before we take a look at the holiday brochures and organise our quarantine plans, let's meet today's panel. First up, we have the editor of the LSE's COVID blog. Follow it at LSE Public Policy. It's Ros Taylor. Hello, Ros. How are you doing? Fit as a butcher's dog, as usual. Fantastic. Well, I, I know a lot of butcher's dogs, and I can tell you they're really not fit at all. They're, they're clinically obese, actually, most of them. New job, COVID blog. What's this all about? Well, you know, five years of Brexit, LSE Brexit, just broke me, really. I mean, it has been nearly five years, which I can hardly believe. It's uh, 2015 when I uh, started co-editing it. And look what a difference I've made. No, but seriously, um, <laughs> it does, it does um, feel good to be... Um, I guess when you're thinking about public policy, you want to be doing stuff that may well influence the government to do the right thing. And I'm very much hoping that that's what we'll do in terms of the kind of research we're putting out and the insights that we're giving. And it will really make a difference and a rapid difference. And we have absolute faith in you. The big story over the weekend on social media was Wiley's fairly revolting anti-Semitic meltdown. And worse than that, Twitter's lax reaction to it. Um, It produced a 48-hour Twitter boycott in response to his comments. Do you, do you think boycotts like this work? I mean, we joined in, we turned off our, our Twitter. Do they work? I don't know if they do. Um, I'd like to think they do, um, but I'm not entirely sure that they will. I mean, I hope so. It's. I think the important thing is to get advertisers to stop advertising on Twitter. I think that's what will make the difference. Uh, ultimately, they're not going to be very bothered about a very small percentage, unfortunately, of uh, their users going offline. I think it damages Twitter's reputation, which is good. It's definitely brought attention to it. I think next time they will remove somebody like Wiley more quickly, which is good. Um, it's worth pointing out, though, that Instagram still haven't removed all his anti-Semitic posts. So there's a lot more to do. Also joining us is comedian, broadcaster and writer Ahir Shah. Hello, Ahir. How are you? Uh, I'm sort of, I, I'm as perturbed as a butcher's dog. I feel as though a butcher's dog would be quite perturbed. Well, speaking of butcher's dogs, it is obesity drive week. And <laughs> Boris Johnson, uh, as the Times said, putting his weight behind it. Um, he's posted a video on Twitter talking about his own personal story of losing weight. Which has went down very well. James O'Brien called it brilliant. Has our Prime Minister finally found his metier? Is this the sort of personalised campaign he can flip his brand around, do you think? Well, it's odd to me that, like, I think that when you don't expect something to come from a certain kind of political figure, it can be more effective. So I think, like, it probably uh, plays into his hands that, you know, the persona that we have of him is uh, someone who's very against nanny statism and has libertarian tendencies. And so for him to be doing that, yeah, maybe it'll work. He's finally found a use for his bunterish persona. Well, I mean, you'd hope that there'd be some use to it eventually. So, uh, you know, it, it didn't do us very well during a pandemic. So maybe maybe this will change the, change the path. This week's special guest is Yasmin Sarhan, a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she covers nationalism and populism. She's appeared on BBC News, the Today programme and CTV over in Canada. Right now she's here in the bunker. Hello, Yasmin. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. We're delighted to have you here. Um, COVID is defining everything at the moment, obviously. And you recently wrote a piece in The Atlantic looking at how it's transformed the issue of homelessness. We were, uh, people were amazed at how quickly we could get homeless people housed when the pressure was on. Do you think Britain has been an example to the world in this? It's one of the few things we seem to have done well lately. Definitely, yeah. I mean, its approach has certainly stood out, I think, compared to most places. I mean, you know, I think we all know that homeless populations are probably like among the most vulnerable communities. So, I mean, you know, being able to get thousands of people on the street in a matter of days is an incredible feat, I think, needless to say. Mm. I mean, the homelessness in Britain has been, you know, the classic kind of frog boiling situation. It gets worse and worse and worse, but you don't notice because of the the, 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 the rate at which it's happening. But as you pointed out in your piece, homelessness is up 141% in a decade and people just accepted it. Do you think that what happened during the pandemic is going to 
make people focus on this and, and perhaps not accept it in the way they did in the past? I mean, that's the hope, isn't it? I mean, you know, I think as you as you say, I mean, we, we kind of get used to it. You sort of just accept that you, you see people on the streets, uh, you see p- people selling big issues, and maybe you buy one every so often, and you think that's sorted, you've done your job. But I think there are a lot of kind of big underlying issues that need to be addressed too. And, you know, homeless ex- homelessness experts that I've spoken to have said that, you know, while it's all good and done, they've had thousands of people, which is a really massive effort, you know, they haven't ended homelessness. And obviously once this crisis changes or once this crisis ends, we hope, um, and, you know, once the hotels reopen as they already are starting to, the question is what happens next? And so, um, and, you know, I spoke to Dame Louise Casey who has been leading the government's um, whole strategy on this. And she said, you know, that there's a desire not to see mass kind of rough sleeping that we've seen and, and that there's money not to. So I guess the question is, how long does that money last? And, and, you know, I mean, of all the things to have a a legacy for, I suppose getting rid of homelessness or quelling it is certainly one thing to be proud of um, in, in what has otherwise been just a really horrible time. Now, going anywhere nice this year? Is anyone going anywhere nice this year? Travel and tourism might seem like a dispensable luxury, but this is a vast industry worth 800 million euros to Europe. According to the EU's own figures, which still included Britain when they compiled them, it directly supports 27.3 million workers and over 10% of the continent's GDP. Obviously, some countries, a lot more than others. From Britain's point of view, the easing of restrictions on holidays was thrown into doubt over the weekend when the government implemented a 14-day quarantine on people returning from Spain with only five hours' notice. This was in response to a spike in new COVID cases in cities including Barcelona, Zaragoza and Madrid. Catalonia has closed its nightclubs and bars for two weeks and young people are the focus of concern about new infections. So selfishly, will we have to write off the idea of getting away at all in 2020? And more altruistically, should we rethink our attitudes to holidays altogether? Roz, are you going away this year at all? Well, I hope so. <laughs> what, what have you got in mind? <laughs> Um, Well, I'm hoping to go to France for a week because I'm going back to the same place, hopefully, that I have done for the last decade because that's how exciting I am. Um, And uh, we'll have to see whether they can manage to keep the infections under control. And then when things were looking really, really bad, I mean, really depressing in April, I decided to get in quick and book a week in the Peak District um, for immediately after that week. The trouble is now, of course, if I go to France and I have to quarantine, I can't go to, uh, to to the Peak District. So, you know, but I tried and hopefully one or the other will work out anyway. I mean, have you found the, 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 the you know, the concerns preying on your mind? Have they all been to do with uh, I may have a quarantine imposed on me at the, at the end of it? Or are they wider concerns of actually, you know, contracting um, COVID while, while out, out of the country? I'm not terribly bothered about that, um, I suppose, because I think that France has generally got it under control. I mean, the, probably the most dangerous time would be on the Eurostar because that's how, and TGV because that's how I'm going there. Um, but that's all masked and socially distanced as well. When we get there, we're going to be spending most of the time on the beach. Uh, eating at a separate table from every other family, these all these things um, make me make me reasonably confident. So it's more that uh, I don't want to, to put the kids through a quarantine and deprive them of, of uh, you know, particularly a, a following week with uh, my daughter's best friend. So hmm. that's very much consideration. What was your take on on the the government sort of emergency squeal of handbrakes uh, the weekend when um, you know Grant Shapps is actually in Spain himself? Um, you know the, the imposition of this this sudden quarantine. Is it the, you know, a lot of people reacted badly in the sense of, well, you've given us absolutely no notice here, but did the government have any alternative? I think it was a very difficult call. Um, it was particularly difficult because in Spain, of course, there are, there's one area, Aragon, I think, which is pretty badly affected and a couple of others which have uh, outbreaks and then others which have almost no cases at all. But it's very difficult to differentiate and the government doesn't seem capable of doing that and fair enough in a way because people can go fly to one region and travel to another and so on and so forth and it all gets very complicated. Um, I can understand that and I think part of, part of it was a desire to get the Spanish government to act in so far they, as they can because, I mean, they had open bars and nightclubs and we know that COVID sp- uh, spreads really easily in nightclubs. It was pretty much a danger to open them in the first place. Um, I think, I hope that this will be the last time they they impose a, a, a ban on an entire, entire country, but 
yeah, it was it was very hard on the people concerned, and I do feel for them. I'm not one of those people on Twitter who was saying, "Oh, you know, it's all right, Jack. I've got you know, um, not just because of my own holiday, but I think that's a kind of nasty strand of Schadenfreude that you've got in the British personality, which says, "Oh well, you know, I wasn't stupid enough to book a public uh, to, to to book a foreign holiday and see how you're suffering now." And that's really unpleasant when you have people who've been, in many cases, working maybe in key workers' jobs for months and months. They've had really really hard six months or so as we all have had, and they just want a week off from that. Yeah. Yasmin, you've covered COVID-19 a lot, and you've also covered the independence secession crisis in Catalonia. What, you know, what is the state of play with the virus at, at the moment? Has, has it affected the separatism in Catalonia, for instance? Is there a, a similar kind of um, disquiet with government handling? That's a really good question. Yeah. I mean, um, I I know certainly early on in the crisis, I think around April, there was definitely sort of a sense that separatist leaders in Catalonia were really trying to use this moment to sort of further kind of argue for why, you know, an independent Catalonia would be better at handling this crisis. And that's pretty much the argument they made that, you know, that, that the region having that Spain broadly having been so hardly hit that they would have been better off um, had they been able to just govern themselves. But I, I don't think there's any indication to say that that argument has worked particularly well, just given how dire things are. Um, and I think what we've seen with the pandemic more broadly is that, you know, it kind of supersedes any sort of politics that has dominated in previous years. I mean, just look at Brexit here. I mean, I know people are talking about it more now, but it's it's really sort of hard to, to sort of make those arguments in the midst of a crisis that hasn't really gone away and we don't really know what the end point is. But I think more broadly, it doesn't, if anything, I think Catalans seem to be thinking that, you know, the animosity between the regional government um, and Madrid is is not helping, but actually harming their, their efforts at combating it. Yasmin, you wrote a hefty Atlantic piece at the start of the pandemic explaining the seriousness of the lockdown for tourism. Spain accounted for 23% of all European tourism in 2018, and tourism was 12% of Spanish GDP. And across the world, it's estimated that the crisis is going to, could well cost 100 million jobs. I mean, do we do we focus on this as as the serious issue that it is sufficiently, or is it all just couched in terms of, you know, like a Daily Mirror holiday hell front page, the idea that it's all simply about the consumer? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of, you know, I feel like certainly for me kind of covering this, it's really hard to sort of focus on what's going to happen after because it feels like we're still so ensconced in like the pandemic and the death toll and, and everything else. But yeah, I mean, businesses, um, business is a huge thing for a lot of these countries, among them Spain, that have been hardest hit. Um, you know, tourism and travel is is the backbone of their economies. Um, and, you know, it's not just the travel industry but that stands to suffer, but all the small to medium sized businesses, the hotels, the restaurants, the bars. I mean, a lot of them all count on like a steady stream of tourists coming in, especially around this time of year. And so, you know, you've already had the sort of the economic frustrations of the pandemic and the lockdowns. Um, but now, um, obviously, as a lot of countries have sort of rushed to reopen, these businesses are waiting and ready. But, um, you know, there's not necessarily a lot of consumer confidence. Um, you know, you're, you're not necessarily seeing lots of people rushing back to the beaches and stuff out of fear or in cases fear of being stuck for two weeks at home when they return. Yeah, I mean, the, the sort of Europe's southern economies in particular are so dependent that almost the kind of prospect of on-off lockdowns is worse than uh, just a continuing clear um, instruction that you can't go until this particular lockdown is lifted because the uncertainty is almost worse than the, the than the certainty of not being able to go. I mean, do, do you pointed out in your piece for the for the Atlantic that traveling across the continent is a it's part of European identity and still for many British people, you know, even though we're not formally in the EU anymore, it's part of, you know, our identity is part of this, of, of, of this, this larger thing than our countries. Do you think that will start to erode as it becomes harder practically to, to travel? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the, the way it was put to me was that, you know, the summer months are the lungs of Europe, which, um, you know, as an American where I think we, we don't appreciate time off or, or as much as we should, perhaps, um, you know, I, I think that's still a big part, not just, you know, for our own enjoyment and relaxation, but culturally. And I think that will persist. I mean, something that I think um, could change is that you might just see more domestic travel, people feeling safer if they can either travel via car um, or kind of going to destinations where they feel like they're not going to be as crowded. Um, so I think people are still going to yearn for that sort of reprieve of the summer months. Um, but but even if we don't see it in the traditional way, I think people will find other ways of relaxing. I know certainly loads of friends I've talked to, if they're not jet setting off to beaches and in faraway countries, they're, you know, driving to the seaside here in Britain and just, you know, 
booking a and b And so, you know, you're, you're seeing it manifest in different ways, I think. We saw Kay, Kay Burley from Sky News said that her, her trip to Ibiza has been cancelled. I had not, not really pictured Kay Burley with the glow sticks on the podium, but I suppose <laughs> you know, we, could, we, could always, uh, we could always dream. Ah, here, are you going full staycation this year? Uh, I am, uh, Andrew. I've got uh, I've got a week off in uh, September, and I'm gonna go. Uh, on, I'm gonna stay in a wigwam in uh, Hampshire. I'm hopefully what? gonna go. I'm hopefully gonna go on a steam train. Uh, I basically I've, I've decided to. I'm, I'm turning thirty at the end of the year, but I've started to really lean into the idea of my thirties before I get there, uh, and it's working out quite nicely for me so far. It sounds like the Alan Partridge vacation. Definitely. Possibly visit an owl sanctuary, possibly, you know, maybe a chocolate. I'd love that. I love love that. (laughs) I mean, what what sort of is a more powerful determinant for you than fear of being stuck in a plane, fear of being trapped in Ibiza, or fear of the British summer and being stuck at home? (laughs) I think the principal fear for me is uh, landing and realising as soon as I land that I'm going to have to come straight back and quarantine Mm. with Grant Chaps for a fortnight. Uh, that's that's my main worry. Yeah, I mean, we, we did. I mentioned it a minute ago. The, the front pages were kind of uniformly uh, as if this was a consumer affairs matter. You know, nightmare, holiday nightmares of trapped Brits, kind of thing. Is this a teachable moment for the British? Perhaps that we, you know, we can't just treat everything as uh, an issue where we shout loud enough, the government will fix it. Uh, yeah, well, unfortunately, yeah, it's it's not going to be a case of uh, shouting at Dominic Raab enough for him to make a vaccine, uh, and mm. uh, coronavirus is not something that you can karate out of existence. So we're not really uh, well set, uh, well set in that sense. I think that you know, it's it's not it's not necessarily a bad thing to have to stay in the country. Like the, a thing that I uh, always really valued about uh, doing stand up all around the place uh when when i could still do that and by the way as someone who massively misses doing stand-up i've really enjoyed being occasionally heckled by your cat uh, <laughs> uh, you can hear him can you yeah it's, it's a given a good sense of what my world used to be like uh you know but your cat's less obviously racist uh but uh, <laughs> um i think like one of the things that i really valued was the fact that i was uh able to you know every year while going around on tour like properly get to see the country that I am from and that I live in. Uh, and, you know, you'll meet people who are very globally well-traveled, but have been to like three places uh, in Britain. So maybe, yeah, you know, go, go, go and have a look. That's cool yeah. stuff. Ross, do you think we're going to have to rethink the idea of the holiday as a, as a kind of essential human right? Is it going to be the, uh, you know, because we, we're sort of tormenting the idea of like the guilt of, uh, you know, uh, carbon emissions and so forth. And the idea that we should actually be revisiting Europe's southern economies as a matter of duty, because without it's not like that they can, you know, just do an Ivanka Trump and find something new. This is what they do. You know, are we going to be sort of feeling the push and pull of those two things? Yeah, I mean, uh, it has to be. It has to be said that we're not uh, currently very interested in uh, supporting the rest of the EU. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is people who are people who are currently um, arguing that they need to help out the economy of Southern Europe. I, I'm not sure I would also see them arguing for Britain to be involved in a in a um, eurozone bailout. However, um, that aside, I think I think holidays have a incredibly important function as a kind of social safety valve. In British culture and generally, particularly in Britain, because here we were we were one of the first countries to allow people to go on holiday to you know the week off the going by train to the resorts. It's something that's very embedded in British culture that you that you can do this and you should do this, and it's something that people look forward to all year, and it. I think a lot of people during the pandemic have been holding out the thought of, yes, I'm looking forward, uh, if I can get just get through this and we can have a week off. And that's incredibly important. And I think it will create a lot more unrest than perhaps the government realises if it turns out that a lot of people can't have that week off. The misery is going to be very great. So uh, we mess with that ideal at our peril. So, Farewell, cheap holidays in other people's misery, and hello, expensive holidays in your own misery. For the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is difficult, isn't it? Because, I mean, I agree with what Ahir was saying, but I'm also mindful of a few years back 
we spent one week in Saundersfoot in South Wales, which is a lovely place. And it was gorgeous weather and it was a brilliant week. And then we went back the following um, year because it was so lovely. And guess what? It fucking rained all week and it was disgusting and there was nothing to do. And it was it, it made you realise the, the real dependence that you have in Britain on good weather. And we also have relatively few really good beaches, which doesn't help in this country. Britain is great if you're into outdoor activities and you don't mind rain, but for other people it is really hard work. I do wonder if what we'll see in the next few years is a bit of a boom in better quality British holidays. And that has to be a good thing. And maybe that will just mean more centre parks, because clearly there are not enough centre parks in this country because you have to pay about £2,000 a week to go to one in the school holidays. There are not enough centre parks. We could build more of them under domes, waterfalls, you know, all that stuff. And the rise of the of the weather-free British holiday, I think, might be something good that could come out. Look, better, better quality British holidays is an achievement. You look, a holiday is what you make of it. Banana grams. It's like a banana, <laughs> you know? like, get, get your banana grams going. You're going to have a whale of a time. I like the idea that Roz is uh, advocating a, a, a new British economy based on our, our very own West world. So let's build our own. <laughs> Yasmin, before we move on, I mean, tourism is often, we touched on this earlier, tourism is often cited as filling the development gap for smaller developing nations uh, at the same time as adding to climate pressures and often, often sort of despoiling those same destinations. Is it short-sighted to think about a duty to travel, a duty to go to these places and, in, and, and inject your economic uh, power into these uh, smaller and developing countries? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, this this whole crisis has kind of posed something of a, of a double-edged sword because, like, on the one hand, you know, obviously the, the, the economic impact is is quite dire for a lot of these places. But on the other hand, particularly where over-tourism is a thing, it's giving a lot of these places and their locals, perhaps most crucially, a bit of a reprieve. They're enabled to, like, sort of in, enjoy these places in ways they haven't been able to otherwise. I mean, I think something that I've learned from friends who cover this industry far better than I do um, is that I think this this whole issue is a lot bigger than, you know, one person making an ethical decision about where they choose to travel. I mean, I think this crisis has kind of shown that the precarity, I think, of, of a lot of places relying on tourism more generally. And I, I think, you know, not just the industry, but these places broadly start to, you know, have to grapple with the with what a more sustainable tourism industry looks like. Um, and, you know, for, for all the, the bad things that have come of this crisis, I mean, this might just give them the opportunity to do that. Well, before we move on, things are just getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, it turns out Tommy Robinson is going to go and live in Spain because <laughs> he can't live here anymore. So I don't know. How does quarantine work there? Possibly can't. We possibly can't comment for legal reasons, can we? <laughs> <laughs> Now, are you ready to start paying for your own social care in later life? It's not that far away, you know. Under plans revealed by The Guardian over the weekend, everyone over 40 would start contributing to the cost of their future social care, either by paying more tax or insuring themselves against hefty bills for care when they're older. Boris Johnson's new Health and Social Care Task Force is examining the plans using examples from Japan and Germany to model a new system. Roz, Twitter got rather angry with this on Monday morning with people seething that the government's targeting people by their age rather than their, their wealth and their ability to, to, uh, to pay. What is the reasoning behind this? I'm not sure there's a lot of reasoning behind it, except that there are a lot of over 40s on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> What's the reasoning behind the ideas rather than the anger? We can understand the reason behind the anger because people on Twitter are angry about everything all the time. What's the reasoning behind yeah. the planning? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's a regressive tax in that sense, undoubtedly. But it does make a kind of sense because particularly when you think about the last few years and the massive intergenerational unfairness that we've seen with not everybody um, who's mid late middle age and older, but quite a lot of people sitting on wealth and younger people earning less, forced to pay tuition fees, in debt, can't buy their own properties. It I, on yesterday, I almost it almost felt as though we hadn't had that discussion and we'd forgotten all that we'd mm. said about young people suffering once it was suggested that they might actually be exempt from a tax on over 40s. You've also got to bear in mind that by taxing the over 40s, the government will get more anyway. The under 40s earn less. So it makes sense from that point of view. And the under 30s in particular have really suffered during the pandemic. I mean, the figures are just blowing my mind at the moment because it's something like 30% of people in London 
are still furloughed. And a lot of those are going to lose their jobs. And people are far more likely to be furloughed if they're younger. It is not just a bad idea from the point of view of, of, of getting money out of people to tax under 40s more heavily again. It is, frankly, cruel, given what we're seeing at the moment. The, the bit about purchasing insurance kind of rang some alarm bells in that the NHS and um, everything it provides are free at, at the point of uh, at the point of delivery, and we we have a kind of a phobia at the idea of of insurance and compulsory insurance in this country. Is this re- realistically a step to a proper insurance based healthcare system, or is, or is it national quote insurance unquote as in a tax by the, any other name? Do you think? Well, I think it's, this is a really bad element of the plan because it's basically saying you can opt out if you buy your own ex- very expensive private health insurance. Basically, this is just like the status quo with healthcare, where you can get private health care if you're wealthy enough or you can buy private education if you're wealthy enough and we know what that does it means that the people who make the decisions at the top of society are not actually experiencing the state provided care for Mm. themselves or the state provided education for themselves and so they don't care so much what it's like and you get a class of people the top five percent whatever the top ten percent who are opting out of public provision and that is bad for a society it means that people are not invested they don't have a stake in 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 it and to opt out of that as well i mean at least with education everybody pays taxes towards education, although some people choose to obviously pay for it as well. But I was very unhappy about that element of the proposal. Mm. Um, these systems seem to work quite well in Germany and Japan. Uh, Carolina Abrams, charity director at Age UK, said the plans will provide a level of provision and reassurance that we can only dream of here at the moment. So if that's the case, where's the kind of negative reaction come from? Is it because of that, that, that alarm word insurance? And is it because simply intergenerational resentment? Yeah, I mean, I think it's basically um, people always hate the idea of an extra tax and they're particularly going to hate the idea of an extra tax when they're feeling vulnerable, when they're worried about losing their jobs, when they feel that they've had a hard time for the past few years. There's never a good time to introduce a new tax, Um, but ultimately we do need one. I hear the last time something like this was broached was uh, Theresa May's dementia tax and we all know how that went. How do you think something like this is going to go down with voters in the in the in the so-called red wall, which apparently are the, the the people we care about solely at the moment in the world of politics. Well, uh, a lot of it's a branding issue, right? Like if you know you successfully brand something as the dementia tax, and then people are going to be really against it. Whereas if you just decided to call this like the cool levy, uh, <laughs> it's like oh, we're just we we want everyone to kick in a couple of quid a month, it based on the fact that they're super cool. Uh, then, then everyone's gonna like. I would be annoyed that I wouldn't pay that uh, mm. because I'm not in my forties. Uh, yeah, I'd be like, oh, I can't wait till I'm forty so I can pay that coolness levy. Well, it's interesting you say kick in a few quid there because one thing we've noticed from uh, things like you know the you know the online petition outfits, they always say, "Will you chip in a fiver? Will you chip in? Chip in is the is the kind of seems to be a phrase that they have tested and works. The idea that it's kind of you know you just chuck a few quid in the in the pint pot for a night out rather than a chunk of your income is going to be <laughs> abstracted and spent on you sometime in the future. Um, there has to, I mean, you're, as you, as you keep reminding us, I hear, disgustingly young. Um, <laughs> there has to be some acknowledgement of generational fairness here, doesn't there? I mean, why aren't young people saying, come on, tax the old bastards more? Well, and also, we, we are eventually going to become old bastards uh, as well. So hmm. I guess this, does, this is like, you know, a thing that will benefit me in the long run. It's like an interesting thing that uh, I, I don't know if I really like instinctively i find the triple lock uh on pensions like i i think that that's not ideal but equally i am going to be the largest beneficiary of it because it will have had the most time to accrue because it was instituted you know when i just started being a working age um right so uh yeah i'll, it, I'll it, be it, amazed it. if it's still there when you're claiming pensions are here i'll be amazed oh, if pensions are still there when you're claiming look, my, pensions. my pension plan is to not live that long Yes, that's actually mine as well. Ha ha, I died. Get out of that one. But there is, there is a concern that something like this, a tax that kicks in when you're 40 coming in 
roundabout now would catch the first generation who had student fees, the first generation who really found buying a house kind of impossible. People like yourself, the, you know, next year's 30-somethings or, or late 30-somethings, you know, have, by sort of uh, saying we're, we're, we're going to tax the old, are we actually not ta- accidentally targeting people who've been rather um, badly done to by the tax system? Uh, what is is it that the first generation who had student fees and uh, found housing out of like uh, in their forties now? Yes, uh, get, well, yeah. I mean, so student fees early, yeah, early forties. Yeah, right. I'm going to have to start being a lot nicer to people in their forties because I did not know that. <laughs> uh, it, uh, I've routinely been like, "Hey, in your forties, you're probably fine." But okay, yeah, perhaps. But like, it's eventually sort of. One way or another, this is going to, you know, with an aging population and continuing advancements in medical technology, meaning that you can live longer and healthier for longer, uh, eventually, you know, some things, whether whether or not this is the right way to go about it uh, is another matter. And I don't know enough about the specific proposals uh, to comment on that. But it does seem like eventually this is something that will have to be paid for one way or another, right? Mm. And it might as well be paid for by people who can afford it. It might as well be paid for by people who aren't me. (laughs) (laughs) Yasmin, you're an American citizen. We live in in terror of private health insurance of any kind in this country. Was that a factor for you in in your choice of career? You know, how am I going to pay for my health care? Uh, I can't say choosing journalism was buttressed by this security <laughs> and stability. Um, no, I mean, you know, I, uh, I, I was very lucky um, to obviously, you know, kind of grow up with a mother who was gainfully employed, who had insurance, uh, to which I've had access until the age of 26, at which point current U.S. law said I could no longer sort of reap the benefits of. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's something I've definitely thought about more and more, um, particularly now in this crisis. I mean, it occurred to me that, you know, I obviously have no plans to visit the U.S. anytime soon, particularly my home of California, which is kind of seeing the worst of it at the moment. But, um, but you know, it occurred to me that if I did, like, I don't, I don't have, you know, God forbid, I go back home and then catch COVID. Like, I don't have health insurance and I'd probably have to pay through the nose um, to, to seek any sort of care. So, um no, I must say I'm quite grateful to 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 live in, in a country with with a national health insurance and to be gainfully employed with with insurance as well. So um, yeah, I mean it's it's something that I think all Americans think of. We just inextricably link our employment to our access to healthcare, which is a having lived here for a few years, I realize is quite messed up. But um, I, I worked over there for a few years, and and my wife's American, and our, our in laws, the you know my in laws, the conversation will come back to healthcare all the time in a way mm. that British people are just absolutely unaccustomed to we just assume that the safety net is there because we pay for it out of our national insurance and it's it, it, um it does prey on the mind doesn't it definitely yeah i mean i know when i when i first moved here and kind of looked at you know my salary and how much was going to the nhs at first i was like oh my god um but then but then i thought about it i was like you know what no i i quite like having that that protection that like sort of assurance at the back of my mind that if i need care i can go and get it i mean i'll tell you one of one of the hardest thing to do when I first moved here was getting a bank account. The easiest thing was registering with my GP. Um, and it's one of the first things I did. Wasn't even sick. I was just like, let me just do this now. Take advantage of this wonderful system while I've got it. My God, you're a health tourist. I get continually like shocked by how weird the system that seems entirely normal to me because I grew up in it seems to other people. So when it's like, I wasn't even sick, I just registered. <laughs> they're like, yeah, yeah, obviously, just like normal. <laughs> it's like, oh no, that is remarkable. Yeah. yeah. Please don't take it away. Yeah. Yes, I mean, t- taking more of a, uh, of, of, of a, uh, a, a systemic view of this. I mean, the, um, the, the Conservative administration's in Britain and in the United States, have long treated older voters as their core client vote. Uh, here, mentioned the triple lock on pensions. You know, essentially, old people vote, and they're quite conservative. Yeah. Are we? Are, are these administrations going to run up against the inevitable here? In that, there has to be more provision of state services, not just because of Corona, but because of an aging population. Old people have got the money. When we're going to need to tax them, is is this a political crunch that's going to be coming in the next few years? Definitely, yeah. I mean, I think it's an inevitability. I mean, just looking at the midterms, um, I mean, we saw the three younger generations 
um, obviously the midterms in the US, uh, Gen Z, the millennials and Gen X, which I think is like between the 18 to 53 year olds. It's obviously a big chunk, but they accounted for just over half of the ballots cast. So, I mean, it's obviously, I mean, we'll see what happens in 2020 and the get out the vote effort there. But mm. I mean, young, I mean, whilst you're absolutely right that older people tend to be the ones who vote, I mean, younger people are coming out more and more in droves. And, and, and the hope is that you know, w- once they do that, then politicians of, of both parties will have to start paying attention. Mm-hmm. Ross, finally, um, not only have the Conservatives got to think about their their client vote, but there is division within the government. In fact, Boris Johnson very quickly sort of uh, flew a kite, saying, "Well, we're not actually actively thinking about this. We clearly, you know, discussions are going on." Do you th- can you see backbench Conservatives, and particularly this current incarnation of the Conservative Party, accepting an idea like this, or will they too collaborate in making it another dementia tax? I'd be surprised if they wanted to or really were able to, because let's not forget. Boris Johnson's 80 seat majority and also that it was been it's been a peculiar development over the last few days that I was reading about apparently there's been a group of um one nation conservative Tory MPs that have sprung up now you might find this remarkable given that what our government has been doing and saying lately but apparently there's a whole group of uh MPs and apparently a third of the new intake of Tory MPs who have signed up to this group saying oh we're one nation we're kind of not quite so right-wing populist we want to differentiate ourselves from these lunatics on the how you tell us yeah 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 I was very excited to read this it's certainly a a startling development and so um maybe just maybe um they uh, will do who's in this uh or have they signed a secret letter out of fear of Dom uh Damien Green I think is the chairman of this initiative that figures oh fingers crossed we're depending on you guys if you're listening Finally, let's escape to the country or the suburbs, unless you're already there, in which case you've already escaped. Cities have been the epicentre of the COVID pandemic, but with restaurants, nightlife and culture all taking a battering from the crisis, plus the higher cost of living and the greater pollution, is coronavirus taking the shine off city living? If city dwellers no longer have to live in cramped and expensive places and instead spend their time on cramped Zoom conferences and Microsoft Teams, will they start (laughs) to move out? And could the 1960s phenomenon of the donut city with lively suburbs wrapped around an empty and decaying centre make a return i hear you're a born and bred londoner can you imagine living anywhere else no i can't uh and i was kind of thinking about why that was the case and it's partly because you know it this is this is home and this is where the family are and that will hold true for you know everyone in the place that they grew up uh but also sort of i i, I left london uh for the first time in many months uh recently uh and it really drove home when I came back the degree to which uh, anywhere else in the country I will always feel like a bit of an outsider uh, for sort of ethnic reasons. Uh, whereas in London, it's just always been the case that for my entire life, it's like, oh, everyone's from everywhere. And that's just just how it works. And that, I don't know, has, has a sort of weird psychological comfort to me. Uh, just to clarify, no problem with white people. White people, you're absolutely great. I love you guys. <laughs> don't, don't uh, we love you too, I hear. <laughs> thank you thank you for being oh my god it's like in the same way that i have had to be the representative for all brown people on so many conversational occasions this is like the first time i've met the representative of the whites this is really all white people we love you mate it's been you the whole time <laughs> <laughs> i know what you mean actually though because like when uh when i started coming to london you know i grew up on merseyside and the th- i was just i was sort of dazzled and almost kind of intoxicated when i came to london because everybody was different everybody's from somewhere else different colors different backgrounds and now when i go back to liverpool i'm i'm kind of weirded out because it's a lot less it's liverpool's a lot more diverse than it was but still it's not quite like london so i've I've kind of flipped over to the other side you know what i mean i find myself a fish out of water in more kind of you know more monocultural places and i suppose that's just what you become you know, acclimatised. But I wanted to ask you, you know, the reasons that people come to London, outsiders like me, are restaurants, music, clubs, you know, museums, the culture, the fact that if you want to order sushi at four o'clock in the morning, you can order sushi at four o'clock in the morning. Many of these things are breaking down. Do you think that that could sort of, you know, lessen the attractiveness of, of metropolises, not just London, but similar ones? 
I don't know. Like, uh, it, it might drive a lot of people out. And I can totally understand how if you were a bit older than I am and, you know, had children and you were sort of going to uh, living in a smaller place and going to an office job, but now the future seems like, oh, you might be able to tolerate a longer commute for a few days a week and be able to go somewhere a bit further out and have more space. Totally makes sense to me. I'm not leaving. And so for me, it's just a boon because if there is an exodus, A, it will just be for all of these goddamn immigrants from Hampshire who've moved into London and taking all our cool shit. Uh, and B, it's just going to lower those prices, you know? So for, for me, for this born and bred chap, it's a big time win-win. So you're going to be the guy from 28 Days Later. Just <laughs> wandering around an empty London. Go, this is marvelous. Look yeah, at my, I, look at my I, am going, I am going to be wearing a hospital gown, and it's not going to be apparent why. Uh, but that is going to be, yeah. I'll, I'll be Killian Murphy at the beginning of that. Yeah, Yasmin, you've you've come to the UK from the US, from California. Um, can you can you see any of these kind of uh, you know th- these factors coming to bear? The idea that. That that you know the the city we were all we're all sold as the as the place where every everything and anything can happen. If it's slowing down, if the if the pace is 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 a little bit more sedate, that it might start to lose that attraction. Yeah, I've actually I've been thinking about that a lot. I did a I did a report um, or a piece I should say um, on how cities are changing, kind of amidst the pandemic, the sort of pedestrianization of, of streets. Um, and, you know, all these like cool, like putting seating outside, like we've seen in Soho here in London, like all these ways cities are adapting. And and something that obviously came across in my reporting was all these reports um, of, you know, city dwellers basically looking to move out um, because they were losing all these perks, as you've mentioned, of, of what it takes to live here. I'm kind of in the same boat as a here. I mean, I, 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 I for one, couldn't see myself living um in a city, if for no other reason that I really don't want to drive places. I mean, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm-hmm. The traffic is yeah. just horrendous. Um, and I had a, a brief university stint in Los Angeles, which kind of cemented my view that if I'm going to live somewhere, it's going to be somewhere with good public transit, which <laughs> for, in, in large part is in cities. And even if, you know, we don't have the same access to them that we that we used to, I, I think obviously that, that won't be forever. Um, and I have no desire to learn how to drive on the wrong side of the road. So Excuse um, me, it's the correct <laughs> side of the road. You guys are driving on the wrong side of the road. We'll, we'll leave that on Twitter. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think for all the, the reasons I hear mentioned, I mean, I think, you know, especially if you're young, I mean, cities play this crucial role. I mean, I think it's where people meet. It's where they make their friends. It's often where the jobs are. It's where they form their networks. I, I think it would take a lot to to sort of undermine that. Um, and, you know, unless all my friends decided they all wanted to move to the same sort of beachside town, maybe then I'll move. But until then, I, I think cities, especially for young people, you know, particularly without families, people who have a lot of those expenses, the city is still kind of has a big draw. Yeah, it, it is kids that's the determinant, isn't it? I mean, I've seen all my friends, the minute the kids turn up, it's like the suburbs suddenly become amazing and they're really attracted to them and they think it's really exciting. Those traditional ways of regenerating urban spaces, shopping cafes, you know, art galleries, uh, beer gardens in, uh, you know, artisan breweries and things like that. They all depend on people wanting to go there and be, not being frightened of being amongst large numbers of of people. Can you know is is that something that just has to well up culturally, or can governments gently coax those things? I think yeah, I mean there definitely has to be a confidence um, kind of level over there. I mean, I know I have friends who still don't feel comfortable kind of sitting in a pub or a restaurant; like they prefer to be outside. I, I, I think that it's certainly kind of government communication is is really key. I mean, I mean, you take the issue with masks and sort of the conversation about their utility and stuff like that. I mean, you know, when when the when the message is so jumbled that you know people don't really know what's what. I feel like they need to feel like there's some sort of sense of direction, and in a lot of cases, a lot of these, you know, measures are, you know, as much to keep people safe as they are to shore up confidence. Um, but I mean, just judging from my own neighborhood, I'm in North London. I mean, the the pubs, the outdoor gardens, at the very least, are packed. I mean, I think people there there is a hunger to sort of be back out there again. Obviously, within certain safety measures. But um, yeah, I mean, I I I just you know, from my little patch of, of London, I don't think um, there's there's any sort of issue of uh, getting people back back outside. Maybe not into gyms quite yet. We'll see. Yeah, Roz, what would it take to get you out of London to go and live in the beautiful suburbs? It would take quite a lot actually, because I have I associate London with freedom. Um, I think in a way that 
sometimes you only do if you grew up in the sticks, as I did, because I grew up in uh, Shropshire and it was very rural. Um, we didn't really have ethnic minorities. I would say, well, it's not entirely true. I was thinking about them. There were probably about four people who could be described as from an ethnic minority in a bat- school of about 1,000. Mm. They were all me was- in a variety of disguises. <laughs> Mm, yeah, it was very, it was very, very white, and I lived in a, well, it was more of a hamlet than a village, even I think oh, wow. you'd say. So I had, I felt very unfree because there was almost no public transport, couldn't go anywhere on my own, and when I did move, um, I guess the first place I moved properly was Norwich. That blew my mind. A bit. <laughs> <laughs> then, I, then I moved to Paris for a while, and that really blew my mind. Um, and then, you know, a few st- stints in other places and then London. And yeah, that, that was, you know, that was incredible. And I always have loved what London, what London symbolizes to me, which was just the freedom to get, uh, to go somewhere without a car, wherever you wanted, see whoever the hell you liked at whatever time you liked. And that has always meant a lot to me. And it still does, even though I'm 45 now. Well, and I, have to- I, I feel like, um, the next time someone asks you sort of where you grew up and stuff, I think such a good answer would just be like, let me put it this way, Norwich blew my mind. (laughs) Then you know everything. (laughs) Before we move on, I do want all of our listeners who do not live in London, of whom there are the majority, actually, most of our listeners, as far as we're able to tell, don't live in London. We're not just banging on about London. It's cities in general. It's Manchester, it's Leeds, it's Liverpool. You know, there's a kind of places where a lot happening, but it's walkable, I think is the thing. And uh, Mm. the the terror of public transport, I think is something that's not necessarily going to go away soon. So sorry, Yasmin, you moved to a place with great public transport and now nobody can use it. I'll learn to cycle. Right, we've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics. Gyms and pools are among the venues back open again, but if they're not working out, what are the panel doing to take their thoughts away from the world of politics? I hear what's been filling your brain this week. Um, So this isn't really an escape route from politics uh, as such, but it is at least an escape route from the contemporary uh, world. I uh, finally got around to listening to the Talking Politics uh, History of Ideas podcast, Hmm. uh, where David Runciman sort of talks through uh, some of the uh, thinkers who are taught in the first year politics course at Cambridge. And it's just, it's really nice and really interesting and uh, sparked off a lot. So if if you want to... Um, think about politics, but not now, uh, <laughs> and, uh, which is totally understandable, then I heartily recommend it. Very good. Yasmin, what's been your escape route mentally from politics this week? I must confess, this is kind of a childish answer, but at the beginning of this whole crisis, um, I downloaded TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) And I I have not posted, I I have not come to the point where I would ever feel confident enough to post, but I've been following a lot of food TikTok um, of, uh, if I'm going to get it into categories, there's just something so relaxing about, and just, there's a levity about just watching people teach each other how to make all these really cool recipes in like little one minute segments. Um, so, I mean, now that TikTok is potentially under threat of, of being banned in various places, perhaps I've I've put all my eggs in the wrong basket. But um, for now, anyway, I am enjoying all the weird trends, um, which, yeah, I will not be partaking in. Um, though if you listen to this and find that months later I've started posting weird dances, then, um, yeah. <laughs> Does this mean there's some ch- giant data center somewhere in Beijing and, and they say, and so we see they're absolutely obsessed with making omelets. That's <laughs> <laughs> all they do the whole damn time. <laughs> Ross, how about your escape route? Well, it's taken at least three years, but I have finally finished the German Duolingo course. Ooh. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's it's brilliant. I have to say, I'm so pleased with nice. myself. And I, there's nothing new to do now. I, all I can do is just go back and do all, other exercises. And my mother-in-law, who's um, German, has started sending me her back copies of Der Spiegel. Oh. So um, I, I actually have to read those now. <laughs> so that- <laughs> a literal escape route you'll be able to you know if you've got if you can just squeeze through the window while freedom of movement is on the go you could buy you could actually go and live in a, a, a huge german city if you wished you've done the groundwork it is a bit of a regret i have to say that i didn't take advantage of my freedom of movement when i really no. had it and i stuck in london and had i known what was going to happen i might have my life might have gone a little bit differently but you can't you know it's too late for that well that is super impressive like i know so many people myself included who started duolingo and then the owl got increasingly furious with them and then got <laughs> up i've never heard of someone genuinely finishing a course on that so that is that is congratulations that's like level completed i'm a, I'm a total 
total sucker for all this kind of, you know, this incentivized stuff and game, game, gamified learning. I just love mm -hmm. it. You know, you tell me to do it and there's a little uh, reward that's a picture of something and I'll totally do it. <laughs> we should put a little picture at the end of the podcast. That'd be good. Make people finish listening to it. My escape route is Mrs. America, which is amazing. Kate, I'll watch Kate Blanchett in anything. This is this is the the story. If you're not familiar, uh, of Phyllis Schlafly or Schlafly, the reactionary right wing anti feminist campaigner in uh, America in the 1970s, who is up against all of your favourite feminist superheroes, Gloria Steinem's in there, um, Bella Rabzug's in there. Phyllis Schlafly is played by Kate Blanchett in an absolutely mesmerising, astonishing uh, performance, and it is. Beautifully, crisply written, very clever. Historically, as far as I'm led to believe, quite accurate. But I just cannot believe that there is such a groundswell of women in the United States who would work so very, very hard to prevent themselves from receiving uh, rights that were that simply seems self-evidently, you know, just obviously something that uh, should, should belong to everyone. It's a fantastic series, absolutely uh, binge-worthy, as they say, and uh, available on the iPlayer right now. And that's the end of this week's bunker. So thank you to our panel, Yasmin Serhan. Thank you for joining us, Yasmin. Thanks for having me. To Ahir Shah, thank you for joining us, Ahir. No worries. And Ross Taylor, uh, Danke Schön, he said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just thinking of the appropriate German phrase. Gern um, geschehen. There you go. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget, you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. You'll get the podcasts early and without adverts. And if you back us, you'll also get a shout-out on the show. And here are some now. Guten Tag und vielen Dank aus Renat Schoolmeisters, Joseph Sherlock, Adam Spence, David Stewart, and Mark Steeples. Thank you, and best wishes from me to Ruth Talbot, open quotation marks, Gribbles, close quotation marks, Tim Easton, Adrian Joyce, and Angela. And finally, hello from me to Kathy Stephen, Janet Heffernan, Amy, Matthew Armistead, and Ken Baker. Hopefully, that Ken Baker. We'll see you next week. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Ross Taylor and Ahir Shah. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>